I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Sajad Jihad, and we're here to talk about our new project, or rather the end of a project we've been working on for the last three years. Uh, the project looks at the transformation of Shia politics in Iraq and asks what we think are a lot of central founding questions about the role of Islamism, religious politics, and even sectarian politics in the creation of a new Iraqi power order, and really more largely uh, an adjustment in the whole Arab and Middle Eastern region over the last 20 years of the role of Islam in politics. Uh, Sajad, thanks so much for coming on Order from Ashes. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So the name, we, we called this project uh, Shia Power Comes of Age, the transformation of Islamist politics in Iraq from 2003 to 2023. And we spent almost three years with a really great team of researchers exploring these questions. Uh, and I guess uh, before we get into uh, some of the details of how we thought this through and what we learned, um, I'm curious now that, now that we're at the end point of all this work, do you have a central takeaway from from this inquiry from this project um i think there is obviously uh you know different views in the book about you know what has happened since 2003 um and why sort of islamism was so prominent in 2003 and still you know very important in iraqi politics today but i guess the sort of key takeaway for me and maybe it'll be the same for the readers when they um, look through the book, is that it really comes down to power. It's not about ideology or religiosity or Islamism per se. It's all about what formula works in order to maintain or increase power. And if that formula is through sectarian rhetoric or aligning you know, you know, your politics along sectarian lines and that works, then that's what these parties will pursue. And I think that's probably... It's, it's probably so obvious when you think about it, because that's the nature of politics, right? It's just about power. It's not really about sort of um, ideologies. But um, I guess when you hear the terms Shia, politics, Islamism, you may think that Iraqi politics is organized along sort of, you know, sectarian ideologies, when in fact, that's just a tool to maintain power. So I think that's probably the, the most obvious fact for me. I'm thinking about it now after having read through the works that um, sticks with, with me till now. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a fascinating kind of evolution uh, that that we traced with this with this team of researchers because the the starting point here was uh, with 2003 the U.S. invasion uh, topples Saddam Hussein and uh, create you know installs a new order uh, opens up room for the first time in in maybe a hundred years uh, for the Shia majority and it's clerical and political leaders to freely uh, express themselves and, and pursue power. And what unfolded uh, in that immediate aftermath was a, was a real blossoming of uh, public religiosity, uh, religious branded politics, uh, and a lot of kind of a historical or a contextual analysis in the early 2000s, uh, not just from researchers, right, but from politicians, Iraqi politicians, international politicians, about what was the role of religion and, and in particular of Shia Islamism and of, of Sistani and the Hausa in Iraqi politics. And uh, a lot of, for, for me, one of the questions was, uh, well, there were two starting questions. One was, um, how how much uh, of what happened in the last 20 years was actually the product of either these Islamist actors or of some supposedly Islamist program? Um, and, um, and two, what does it mean to be a Shia Islamist in Iraq uh, when literally the entire dominant uh, uh, political class uh, self-defines as, as Shia Islamist uh, and are competing for power among, uh, between themselves. Uh, so for me, it was almost having looked at this so closely for for nearly two decades, I was surprised by how confused my answers to those questions were when we began, because I, I would have thought there would be more, uh, uh, more clarity at, at, at the outset. Um, uh, so 
you know, when, when, when you jumped into this, uh, uh, and we, and we started putting together this research team, um, what, um, like, how did you think through, uh, these questions of like the historical narrative and the role of the clergy specifically and of, of religion and defining political programs? So that's a good question. I think for me, um, I'm looking at 2003. I'm saying, what happened? Why is suddenly Shia politics an important thing in 2003? And well, partly it's by design because the Shia Islamist parties were the most organized opposition parties. They were most prepared to enter Iraq in 2003. They'd been in exile for two decades and had organized themselves pretty well and were you know, ready to take up positions in the new Iraq. They were more organized than the secular parties and everybody else who was still inside Iraq and never got out. So partly they were just the most prepared. And so that's why, you know, Shia Islamist politics became the most powerful actor. Partly, as you said, because a large part of the population defines themselves as Shia Muslims or Islamists or conservatives. But then also purely by, say, for example, accident. I mean, if Saddam had never gone in 2003, would we have heard of the role of Ayatollah Sistani in politics post-2003? If he was, if Saddam was still in power, would we, you know, in, you know, outside Iraq, know very much about Ayatollah Sistani's political views or interventions? Would there have been any interventions? Highly unlikely, right? Because you know what we can see from the time that he was in Najaf while Saddam was in power, in 1992 to um, 2003, there was almost nothing in terms of political interventions. Uh, Iraq was an authoritarian state. There was not going to be any other political actor apart from Saddam Hussein. So I think you know that is the reason why there was a huge change in 2003, like I said, partly through design, but partly by accident. And for me, it, in the book, it was important to have these strands explained to us. What happened post-2003 that allowed Sistani to become more, um, you know, more powerful in Iraqi politics? And what did he do to become more powerful in politics? And how did he exercise that power? But then also, what about the parties themselves? How were they... Um, acting when they were in, in power post 2003? Did they fragment? Did they coalesce? Who were the key leaders in some of these parties? And I think some of the pieces, you know, touch upon even specific characters, specific individuals and their timelines pre-2003 and post-2003. But then also, when is the time around which uh, sectarian rhetoric and Islamism became less flavor of the month? You know, what happened? And so we touch on, on the protests, for example, in 2019, we talk about the fragmentation of these parties. We talk about a new generation of people trying to get involved in politics post-2003 who became politically mature after 2003. Um, we also discuss, for example, uh, and this was what, what we were doing when we were trying to find the right team of, of writers and researchers. We're asking the question, what is Shia politics? You know, what is it about? Who, you know, what is the sectarian element to this? What are the arguments that can be made what, when someone says Shia politics is a bad thing, for example, like what is what is that? Why is that a bad thing? Who says it's a bad thing? So putting all these trends together, I think we've got a nice variety in the book of um, experts, but also who are touching upon different angles. You know, new generation politics, historic Shia politics, um, religious authority, and then obviously we're also looking at, for example, specific incidents post 2003. Um, the nature of the constitution, for example, and elections, things like that. So for me, it's it's a nice collection of variety that we've got. Yeah, this and this podcast today is the first in in, in a four part series that showcases some of the key findings in Shia power comes of age. So today, I'm talking with Sajad about the overall findings of of these years of research. Uh, in the second episode, Marcina Shamari talks about the power of clerics uh, based on her fieldwork in the seminaries of Najaf. In the third episode. Taif al-Khudari looks at protest politics uh, and charts the efforts of the Tashreen protest movement to establish some kind of alternative to religious politics. The fourth and final episode in this short series uh, features Ali al-Maulawi, who tries to connect some of today's sectarian rhetoric to Iraq's long history of anti-Shia prejudice. Now, 
our listeners who are interested uh, in all all the different uh, aspects of this question uh, and really what is the significance of Iraq's trajectory, the trajectory of Shia Islamism in Iraq to religious politics more widely in the region, uh, in the Arab region, in the Middle East, in the Islamic world, uh, can find the entire work of this project on the Century Foundation's website. So if you go to tcf.org uh, and uh, look for the Shia Politics Project homepage, you'll find all the research uh, from this team, uh, which we'll be talking about in, in, in some detail on today's podcast, uh, but you can see the uh, uh, the, the, the different reports, uh, the book that Sajad is referencing, which is a uh, edited volume uh, in, in book form of all the uh, the research uh, papers, um, and uh, actually coming up later this fall, uh, there's a really phenomenal uh, monograph, a, a biography of uh, Ayatollah Ali Sistani by Sajad. We won't talk about that today uh, because uh, I don't want to spoil the launch of that uh, coming up later this year, but that's a, a fantastic uh, piece of work with a lot of staying power. Uh, now, uh, Sajad, to go back to what you were um, what you were uh, saying just a minute ago, uh, I want to, I want to follow up, uh, because I think this is sort of the beginning, the beginning of the story. So you talked about, uh, these sort of questions in 2003 of, you know, what, what is, uh, what is Shia politics and the, the historically contingent accident that propelled, uh, these, uh, structurally advantaged, uh, Shia institutions and Shia, uh, uh, movements and factions, uh, into the center stage. And I want to, I, I want to go back actually to that time, uh, a little bit and, and r- like remind our listeners and ourselves what it was like in 2003 to 2006, when this new, the new Iraqi order had not actually yet taken root. And the entire region was in a lot of, uh, a lot of transition, right? Political transition, authoritarians were being challenged by inquiet movements. There was a lot of uh, belief at the time that Islamist politics uh, in, in Sunni parts of the, of the Arab world, uh, sort of Muslim brotherhood inspired movements um, in Shia areas, uh, uh, a more sort of heterogeneous panoply of, of, uh, of, of movements and, and, uh, organized uh, political and, and, and social forces, there was this idea that that Islamism was the future, and um, and I'm wondering if you can help help us remember how vague or or, or, or let, let me not ask it in a loaded way. What did that mean at the time? Two thousand three, four, five, six in Iraq. What did it, what did it mean to be an Islamist, and what what uh, for these uh, Shia? Iraqis who were not part of any organized ideological religious movement. They were just simply people of, 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 of faith who had a, 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 you know, a belief in, in, in a certain uh, sect. What did it mean to suddenly think of that as a political identity or a political agenda? I think it was a, you know, it was a, a moment where everybody was asking that very question, you know, what is going to happen now if Islamists are going to, you know, rule Iraq, so to speak, and what is political Islam? And obviously, you know, we're talking 2003, it was only sort of 18 months after the September 11 attacks. And then we had sort of US action in, in Afghanistan. But Islamism or the um, political Islam, if you will, was on the rise all through the 90s. And when it came to Iraq, that question was, can we have a country with a Shia majority that would also be able to offer a competent ideology and administration for the first time in forever, basically, that was based on uh, a vision of politics which had respect for Shia Islam. We haven't had that in Iraq. We had decades of um, secular authoritarian rule, and it was never sort of in anyone's imagination. We didn't think it was possible that we would have, you know, turban clerics being important in Iraqi politics and that Shia Islam would be sort of the majority voice or the most important voice in Iraqi politics. I don't think that was any on anyone's mind that it was ever going to happen. We thought, you know, that maybe Saddam and his dynasty would be in power for, for many years. So it was a shock. And then 
it was even sort of more of a surprise, maybe to, to Iraqis who were inside the country at the time, rather than those who came from abroad, that actually these parties were not all united. They had different views. You know, we had the Tao Party, for example, and the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, the two most powerful Islamist parties based in Iran. They had been at sort of, uh, they had been at a tense rivalry and a bitter rivalry for, you know, at that time, three decades. And so they did not agree on the way forward. And instead, you had to have sort of a politics of consensus that emerged. We didn't even think, I mean, I was in Iraq in 2003 at the time, so were you. You know, we had no idea what the American plans for Iraq were. Would Bremer remain in power for, you know, five plus years? Would the American occupation remain forever? Right. Would it be like the post-World War II occupations of Japan and Germany? Exactly. You know, Bremer was talking about appointing a governing council and appointing people who'd write the Iraqi constitution and, you know, sort of a slow, gentle handover to Iraq over, you know, potentially the next 10, 15 years. We did not know, you know, what the future looked like because nobody really had a plan. Even the Shia parties did not really have a plan. You know, they, they didn't force Saddam out. It was the Americans and the Americans were in charge and the Shia Islamists were able to come back into Iraq, but they didn't necessarily have a plan for what to do next. So there was a lot of um, confusion maybe about what was going to happen. But I think events sort of forced things in, in a particular direction. We suddenly had this, you know, the rise of the insurgency. And then you also had a Shia Islamist actor in Muqtada Sadr who decided, well, the exile parties don't speak for the Iraqis who remained inside the country. And I don't recognize anybody else's religious authority. I also am a source of political authority. And then I also have my views on, you know, uh, the American occupation. So I think that, sort of made a lot of um, realities on the ground that perhaps whatever plans or ideologies people held suddenly got thrown out the window and said, hey, we have to respond to things that are happening on the ground. There's no more idealism. We have to work with these parties. We have to work with the American administration of Iraq. We have to work with locals in Iraq, people who never left during Saddam's time who may not have the same views as the rest of us, even if they identify as Shia Muslims. I think that was a surprise to some of these politicians who came from abroad. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, you know, that moment of the first uh, Arbaeen pilgrimage in 2003, was, which, which I went to, to Karbala during, uh, was, was an incredible, uh, out, you know, outpouring of free, freedom of religion after years of violent suppression of, of, of the Shia by uh, Saddam. And in that moment, um, as I remember it, no one really knew what what that kind of power or constituency would would actually translate into like what what political views did that population have no one knew um and and actually at the time i don't think anyone was so confident about how uh shia leadership what whatever whatever form that would take uh would view for example the question of direct rule by clerics you know would um would iraq see a a group of of clerics who wanted to directly control the state the way uh shia clerics do in iran um and you know now it, it's been so clear for so long that that is not where uh iraqi uh, uh shia clerical views are uh that that we forget that that was that was in question for some time right there were there was a there was a uh a curiosity about where that would go. And I think there were, uh, you know, there were some, I don't know how these debates actually played out, but there was some debate about that among, among powerful figures. Um, and, uh, and by, I guess, 2005, 2006, quite early on, uh, it was clear that for sure, uh, Sistani and all the senior, uh, Marjaya and, and Najaf and, um, maybe most of the political, uh, actors were, um, were not interested in direct clerical rule. They were interested in, in, you know, clerical authority as a, as a, as an arbiter, as a source of legitimacy, uh, but um, not as a lever of governing power, and that was a that was actually I think we we maybe sometimes underestimate how important that was. That was actually a, a radical and transformative position for a major important country, uh, a, a Shia majority republic uh, uh, with a uh, s- civil government. 
uh, you know, not a dictatorship, not a hereditary ruler, uh, a place whose government was chosen by, uh, however flawed, some form of elections and consultative practice uh, process to uh, to see all its senior religious figures endorse a model of of religious restraint. Um, you know, it, Shia Islamism was the label, but the practice was something very different than, say, Shia Islamism in uh, in Iran or among some other in, influential uh, uh, thinkers. Um, and once that uh, once that Rubicon was crossed, um, which I guess I would I would look at the you know the first wave of elections from 2005 uh, through the constitutional referendum that year, um, we we embarked on a stage of. Uh, it, you know, in I I say in sort of scare quotes, Islamist politics or Shia Islamist politics, in which uh we had vastly different figures with that vastly different views and agendas, all competing with each other under this same vague banner of of Shia Islamism, um, and uh, and I guess you know the the what what do you see as the most Im- important axes of difference between these, the nationalists and the, uh, and the ag- returned exile. I don't know how you would sort of slice up the, uh, uh, the, the, the different currents of thinking about political power, uh, among Shia Iraqis in the sort of f- most recent 15 years of, uh, of the, the maturation of a new, a new form of, of Shia power. So you're absolutely right. I think 2005 was the most important year um, in recent Iraqi history. In 2005, three important things happened. The first was we had the first national elections that approved the National Assembly, which was then going to um, choose people to write the constitution and then have a vote on the constitution, which we did. That was the second a referendum on the constitution um, in October 20. Uh, sorry, in October 2005, and at the end of the year, in December 2005, we had the first parliamentary elections um, and uh, the first sort of uh, acts of democracy following the establishment of our constitution. And these three events in that single year created what is the sort of modern political system in Iraq. It was when we decided that we were going to have a parliamentary system, when we were going to have a sort of a, a government that was formed in parliament, the prime minister was going to be constrained by certain things. When we understood that it was going to be consensus politics, that you would have to share power through parliament, and that basically everybody would re- be represented, we would have a semi-autonomous Kurdistan region. So that is the basis of what we have in politics today. And I think that was the time when we realized, okay, yes, the Americans will hand over power. Yes, you know, we are going to now see parties compete with each other in parliament, in elections. We're not going to have the specter of you know, parties going to war with each other, which was a possibility. But then obviously the civil war in 2006 and elements of that that spilled over 2007 and 2008 made people question whether, you know, the, the project was feasible. What if we were going to have a 10-year civil war? What would be the point of trying to have elections in, in, in such circumstances? Thankfully, you know, um, security situation improved. And I think, you know, things settled down in 2009, probably, when we had sort of some of the stability. But unfortunately, it was always up and down. 2009, things were okay. 2010, we had a lot of questions about who would be the next prime minister. You know, in third 2013, Increase in activity by ISIS, obviously in 2014, the fall of Mosul, um, the fatwa by Atosistani to, to fight back against ISIS, and a bit more stability, I would say, towards 17 and 18, major protests in 2019. So, you know, it's very difficult to see sort of one key element of stability from that 2005 period. Things have always sort of been up and down. But what we've noticed is that firstly, it's very difficult to find any politician or party who's universally liked or who people have you know, very positive views on. I don't think that exists in the country. It was also um, surprising in a way that with a period of time, what 
what emerged was you had Shia parties who began to work very closely with Kurdish parties and Sunni parties on one side, and then exactly the same on the other. Also Shia parties, also Sunni parties, also Kurdish parties. And sort of the beginnings of this formation of two separate blocks that were competing against each other on for territory, for resources, for seats in parliament, for government, posi- government positions and cabinet positions. And that's, you know, that development started before 2018. And it's it's still very relevant right now. So I, I would hesitate to say it's post-sectarian because I don't think we're there yet. But certainly it's not one block of Shia against one block of Sunnis against one block of Kurdish parties. That's not... I mean, this is what makes it so so fascinating and difficult. And uh, I mean, Fanad Haddad's contribution to our project, uh, which uh, readers can find uh, in, in, on the project page, is uh, he we, we titled it "Shia Rule as a Reality in Iraq: Shia, uh, Shia Politics." In quotes, needs a new definition. Um, and he s- sort of delves into this this conundrum that you just raised, which is, you know, if if Shia rule and Shia politics are not precisely some kind of religious, ideological, coherent uh, body of thinking, uh, they're, they're at the same time not irrelevant, right? Because at the end of the day, we, you know, we have these two competing blocks, but there's not an ideological or even programmatic difference between them. It's like the difference between two, two football teams. Um, uh, and, um, and, in, and in practice, every party that has succeeded in the long term has been entirely composed of members of one identity group, right? So, um, you know, w- w- there have been efforts. I mean, I would say Ayad Alawi's Irakia, though you know many flaws to it, was an effort at a at a non identity based nationalist coalition, and you know Maliki destroyed it politically, and it really has never regained relevance. I think the Tishrin movement has tried at times. Uh, to um, to 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 create some kind of non-identity based coalition, but in practice, it seems to me all the uh, revolutionary parties, for the most part, are uh, whether it's by accident of geography or by some kind of structural f- uh, 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 factors, are still grouped by identity group. I mean, there is there are all these youth parties that are almost entirely Shia and there are all these youth parties that are entirely Kurdish and Sunnis are, you know, they're welcome. Sunni Arabs are welcome in these parties, but you don't see very much of them. Um, and they have not organized the Sunni Arab Tashirini party, uh, possibly because of the fear that, that it would be, uh, you know, immediately labeled as a as insurrectionist and, you know, uh, uh, lumped in with ISIS. Um, so there's this, there's this, very persistent like sectarian disciplining right where where even even people who personally define themselves as nationalists and do not see their politics as connected to their sectarian or ethnic identity the only political homes they can find are identity-based factions um and i i mean i think that's a that's kind of uh in a way uh, mysterious. And then in a way there, the, you know, people have found some good explanations for why, why this happens, you know, the, the sort of utility of organizing, you know, the competition for political violence as Renad Mansour pointed out in his study of the logic of inter-Shia violence in Iraq or the utility of, uh, you know, identity-based political organizing that like has driven the Sadrist electoral machine, which Ben Robin de Cruz very uh, pointedly mapped out. So, so you get these these sort of like even if your ideology isn't sectarian, it ends up being the most practical way uh, to to seek power. Um, and I and I wonder if if um, in all these inquiries, do you see do, like do you see the possibility for a non identity group? based path to power for an Iraqi political movement? Not in the short term, I think. It's maybe possible in the longer term. I mean, right now, we do not have a party that is able to compete in all of Iraq's provinces. So the latest election law makes Iraq a return to 18 electoral districts because we have 18 provinces. 
yet we don't have a party that is able to compete as members or candidates in all of these districts. For example, the KDP does not, the Kurdistan Democratic Party does not have MP candidates in Basra province in the, in the far south. And the same other parties, for example, you know, they don't have MP candidates in the Kurdistan region or in Erbil or in Dohok or, or Stemania province. And I think until we have a party that emerges that is actually competing on a national level, it's not a local party in that sense, it's not a territorial or sectarian party. Until we have that, then the answer to your question is, no, it's not possible right now. But once we do have a party that is cross-sectarian, truly cross-sectarian, that is able to you know, compete in every province, that is able to attract members and able to attract votes across the country, until we have that situation, then we will not you know, move beyond what we have right now, which is sort of consensual politics, consortialism, or what we, you know, what we can say is uh, a bargaining, a grand bargain to rule the country according to the interests of, you know, various sectarian or ethnic parties. But it is possible. It is possible we will get there. Not right now. And once we have that such a party and such a movement, yes, I think, you know, the the population would be fairly um, amenable to, you know, thinking about national politics in that sense. But whether these parties will allow such a thing to happen without a reaction, you know, they have money, they have weapons, they control territory, they control media. They have almost full power in their particular areas, in their cities and in their provinces. Will they allow a cross or a national party to come in and start to compete with them for votes? I think that's questionable, and certainly not on the agenda in the short term. Well, and, and right, so there's there's a sort of, you know, on the one hand, we can say, you know, Shia Islamism doesn't really mean that much today, right? Like if, if someone's a Shia Islamist, it doesn't tell you anything about what position they'll take on how to rule Iraq, what, you know, like, you know, any of the, any of the questions about, uh, you know, regulating militias or, you know, dealing with personal status or inheritance or the budget, like whatever is actually an important issue facing Iraq, being a Shia Islamist is not going to tell you what position that movement will take. Uh, on the other hand, the second we begin to think it's not important, something like last fall's government formation process rolls around and, uh, we had this coalition that was kind of national and, and trans identity, right? So it's, you know, Moqtada represent the, the top vote getter among the Shia allying with Hadbusi, uh, and, and the top vote getters from the Sunni Arabs and the KDP is the top vote getters among the Kurds. Uh, they formed a, a grand alliance and that was so threatening to the sectarian parties uh, that they successfully torpedoed uh, a formation of government by this uh, really like the, the the most successful trans identity uh, coalition that Iraq has seen since uh, since the fall of Saddam, uh, and it was um, it was toppled by sectarian Shia parties who saw that as a threat to a sectarian based corrupt order, um, and they managed to. Uh, uh, use the prerogative of identity politics by, you know, the, the sort of claim that the Shia house had to pick its leader and the Sunni house had to pick its leader and the Kurdish house had to pick its leader. And then, and only then could a government be formed. And that sort of, you know, that's a very revanchist program that doesn't say anything again about anything of substance other than identity groups, Trump, all other politics. And that proved to be, successful uh in in a, in a power showdown um and for me that was a that was a really interesting kind of uh somewhat unexpected relapse uh to this like lowest common denominator and it was confusing in the sense that even 20 years into the development of a pretty sophisticated political space uh these movements were able to uh trump a much more powerful in some ways uh, and certainly more electorally powerful coalition simply by this, by this reversion to identity first. Yeah. I mean, I would push back a little bit and say, you know, that the individual parties in that coalition obviously were based on ethno-sectarian identity, right? The Sudris, um, and uh, the Barzani KDP, you know, each of them speaks to a specific audience and territory and geography, right? They're not, 
nationalist parties. And so Oli represents specific constituencies and they wanted to form a government, they called the majoritarian government, that excluded some of these other parties, not all of them, but some of them. And I think, as you said, that was a threat to you know, the remaining parties, particularly in the Shia House, who said, well, hold on, if we allow them to form a majoritarian government and exclude some of us, then that's probably the end of our political power in the country. You know, we will never recover. So we need to sort of put a stop to that and continue to have 10, 12, 15 parties in, in government and share power that way because that's the only way to sort of prevent a, a conflict. And we did have a conflict last year in August, uh, end of August, 29th of August, um, 2022. We had a conflict here in the green zone between the Sadris and the and members of the, the Shia House, or what they call the Shia Coordination Framework, um, particularly their supporters in the PMF. So the threat of violence, I don't think, is ever going to completely go away. I think that that is a reality because political parties in Iraq have control of weapons, have control of government departments, have control of resources and territory. And some of them have a history of fighting against each other. You know, In the 90s, we had the KDP and the PUK fight a, a civil war. As I said, just as recent as August 2022, we had you know Shia parties fighting each other. So it's it's a possibility again in the future. I don't think that's gone away. Um, but whether you know we will see a another attempt to form a majoritarian government, um, and whether this majoritarian government will succeed and actually be a majoritarian government, or will it sort of be a coalition and sort of just exclude one or two political parties and still continue to be organised along sectarian lines i think unfortunately you know that's the latter that's what's going to happen in the next elections we will sort of just continue in the way we are um it's the easiest sort of form of of government and it's the easiest way to ensure you know nobody's going to go to war with each other iraq's iraq's trajectory has also given very usefully and helpfully given lie to the lazy and maybe sometimes uh uh, racist tendency in some quarters to lump all, uh, you know, all Muslims or all Shia into a monolithic category and think of them as somehow uh, 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 different uh, political actors than uh, you know other other more complex or you know rational rational political actors um, and the the very well documented um, and very uh, uh, like clear trajectory in Iraq is of uh, competitive politics, pluralism, um, you know, for worse as well as for better. Um, and, and it gives, it gives lie to any kind of simple analysis, right? So you were just talking about uh, violence, which has, has become uh, very much integrated as a form of contesting and adjudicating power and conflicts. Um, we haven't talked too much about this in today's conversation, but uh, you know, patronage networks, personalities of leaders, which Maria Fantapie actually did a brilliant uh, job showing how the sort of very contingent personalities of various Dawa leaders turned out to have a lot of significance in, in how the uh, Iraqi state and how uh, Shia Islamism evolved in, in the last 20 years. Um, and uh, we also, I think, uh, could, could look at other contingent things like, uh, uh, you know, accidents like uh, not accidents, but moves like Muqtada Sada's withdrawal from parliament last year uh, or in earlier stages, shifts, inter in interventionist shifts in approach by the United States uh, and other intervening powers, which then had cascading consequences for the political order. All these layers of contingent, uh, uh, historical contingency have led to an incredibly rich and heterogeneous, uh, a, a diverse space that falls under this label Islamist politics or Shia Islamist politics. Um, and in practice, it contains, you know, all these things, personnel fiefdoms, warlords, nationalists, exiles, uh, you know, networks of corruption, uh, rivals who compete violently for state power, but also collaborate very efficiently uh, to pillage state resources um, and and all these all these um, elements which we uh, which we mapped in this in this study uh, really do 
add up to an answer to the question of how how should we understand Shia politics? Um, and it is, you know, the answer is not sect doesn't matter. Uh, uh, but the answer is also not sect explains everything or even explains that much at all. It's like a, it's like a necessary, but grossly insufficient, uh, indicator of what's going to happen in, in Iraq's political space. Um, and, and I think it really is, is it's so important how it forces us to be serious about how we think about the role of religion in politics. Like it's not irrelevant and it's not the sine qua non that explains everything, um, and that leads to complexity, right? Like if you want to talk about religion and politics, that's great, but you better come prepared, um, to be granular and specific and not deterministic and not essentialist, um, and, and, and engage in these, in these questions to which there are not like clear axiomatic, like mathematical answers. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I would say, you know, our, our book, the, the papers that we have, the, the authors that we um, worked with, we're focused on Iraq. We haven't addressed the issue of Shia politics in other countries, in Lebanon or Bahrain, the rest of the Middle East and further off. We haven't discussed religious politics in Iran. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of scope there in the future for more research on these other elements. But what we can say is we've had a, a pretty good deep dive on post-2003 Shia Islamist politics in Iraq. And I think what you pointed out is exactly right. You know, um, we don't have all the answers on how religious politics works. We can't say sect absolutely dominates everything. That's not true. But there are elements, um, as you pointed out, that help to make sectarian politics work in Iraq and have helped that work in Iraq since you know 2005. And yet there are many things about the political system in Iraq, the current political system, that can be explained through a non-sectarian lens. As you said, the networks of patronage, the corruption that we have, for example, you know, the, the, the use of violence, coercive power to form a, a, a bargain or an agreement to allow you know, a coalition government to be formed. All of these are not necessarily based on you know, sectarian ideologies or positioning. And I think that's probably one of the key takeaways in this in this work is that there is a lot else beyond the headlines. You know, the, the positioning of parties when it comes to elections, for example, Ben Robbins talks about the Sudris electoral machine. How does that work? And how do they maximize their gains, for example? And I think that's probably one of the um, useful things that we've had in our series is to sort of take that deeper dive to, you know, to look into the details of how some of these uh, questions come into play. And there's, and you know, one thing we didn't get into too much in this research project in our Shia power uh, research, but I think is an important adjunct to these questions is, um, you know, w- you know, we looked mostly at elite politics and it, and it, uh, the, the clerics who in, in some cases made a, a virtue out of weakness or, or chose to take a step back. Uh, and as a result, uh, ended up shrewdly preserving their legitimacy in a way that they would have lost had they, you know, become much more directly involved in politics. Uh, but one thing we, we, we didn't, we didn't talk about, but which I think has been a real instrumental driver is the way in which Shia politics has emerged or defined itself in response to some really murderous and extreme sectarianism coming from uh, Takfiri uh, Sunni movements that have been like a real key dialectical uh, uh, driver of the development of of contemporary Iraq, right? So uh, these, these parties and these movements and these clerics and these nationalists were all operating uh first in in a context in which al-qaeda uh and its and its offshoots were were terrorizing and killing a lot of people uh and then in in uh, the during the period of isis uh and it was a shia response ultimately right a, a shia a shia mobilization along sectarian lines in uh into shia uh, militias that all had, you know, religious iconography and religious legitimacy uh, that 
that put the 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 bodies on the line uh, and and sacrificed tens of thousands of lives uh, to um, to recapture the the areas held by ISIS. Now I'm uh, you know I'm not trying to say that that was the entirety of the counter ISIS campaign, and I'm not I'm not trying to erase erase from history the uh, secular and nationalist and and you know non religious. Uh, and international forces that were part of the counter-ISIS campaign. It was obviously a very broad uh, coalition, but it was the, the infantry of the counter-ISIS war were the volunteers that followed the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the fatwa uh, that formed the um, popular mobilization forces. Um, and that is that whole dialectic of, of response and protection and survival in the face of a very baldly sectarian movement, uh, Takfiri Sunni sectarian movement that actually talked in genocidal terms about killing all Shia. Uh, like that is a, that's a key piece of how this evolved. And I actually think it's, um, remarkable historically speaking, uh, that the response was not, uh, that the response has been as restrained um, and relatively less sectarian than the forces that it was mobilizing to contain or 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 reverse. Um, again, I think you know you've you've got that exactly right. I think we can't underestimate how important the threat or not the threat, the actual implementation of violence, sectarian violence, was in was in Iraq, and you know the sheer response to that um, was to be on the defensive. I think. You know, absolutely right. From 2003 onwards, the Shia war were on the defensive, um, and maybe continue still to to be so. But also, I think the question of what would happen if Iraq was stable, or we did not have this threat of violence, how would these parties govern? How would they behave? What would you know the role of religious authority look like? I think that's also something that's untested. We don't know. We've never had that period where things have been relatively stable. We've not had the threat of sectarian violence. We've not had, you know, parties willing to engage in violence on sectarian or ethnic terms. So that's something also to to consider is what if politics was fairly normal and politics was normalized in, in Iraq? What would happen to Shia politics? Would it be a relevant thing? Would it be irrelevant? Would these parties be able to govern effectively, or would they just, you know, continue to uh, do politics the way they have been in all these preceding years? So it's something to look at in the future, I guess. And that and that normal is, I think, what we have what we have collectively documented in in the Shia Power Project, right? So the you know the the Shia response uh, to Sunni sectarianism was, of course. Uh, uh, contained a great deal of violence and and there were you know death squads and massacres as well uh and what we have found over a 20 year period is that uh throughout the fabric of political life uh we have now normalized patronage uh theft extortion uh murder as a as a tool of of uh securing power um you know these these sorts of modalities of violence and theft and and and, and pillage are the the ways in which political movements uh, seek and consolidate power um and i i think that is um that is what normal looks like and i mean you use the word stability uh and i think you know, a listener might might think stability and think, uh, yeah. I mean, we always use Switzerland as the you know, but they might think Switzerland, and we're not talking about Switzerland, right? We're talking about uh, we're talking about a relative stability that 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 might contain a lot of a lot of hor- horrible elements for for the people who, who live in the system, but the system can be as it is right now quite stable. Uh, even while uh, uh, you know convulsing under under these these types of of, of vectors, uh, you know, stable instability, I think, is a term you and I end up resorting to a lot. Well, uh, I'm very excited um, to be bringing to to the public uh, all this all this work. Um, listeners can find the work that we've been talking about today on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. Uh, the project is called uh, Shia Power Comes of Age. 
the transformation of Islamist politics in Iraq, 2003 to 2023. Uh, today, I've been talking to Sajad Jihad, who's our Iraq fellow and the director of the Shia Politics uh, Project. And uh, in three subsequent episodes, uh, you'll hear from other contributors to the project. Uh, so in episode two, Marcina Shamari will be talking about the seminaries of Najaf and uh, arguing about uh, how clerical authority has managed to remain stable despite setbacks over the last 20 years. In the third episode of Shia Power, Ta'af al-Khudari uh, chronicles the revolutionary efforts of the Tishreen protest movement to establish an alternative to religious politics. And in the fourth and final episode of the series, uh, Ali Maulawi connects some of today's sectarian rhetoric to Iraq's long history of anti-Shia prejudice. Uh, you've been listening to Order from Ashes from Century International. Uh, I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I've been speaking with Sajad Jihad. Sajad, thank you so much for all your amazing work on this project, and thanks for coming on Order from Ashes today. Thank you, Thanasi, for the um, opportunity to be involved in this project. Thanks to Century as well for helping fund and organize this. And I really hope we get some positive feedback from the readers and listeners to the work we've had. And hopefully we can also um, look at sort of, you know, in the future, potentially, where such works could fit in and maybe how to expand that. So thank you. Yeah, Sajad has big plans, uh, as do I, to turn this lens onto transnational Shia networks, uh, looking at everything from, as he referred to Bahrain and uh, Lebanon, and also to the actual uh, pilgrimage uh, uh, traffic and, and uh, alms and, and the networks of, of charity and other financial uh, power that they form. So uh, look forward to more of this work and uh, thanks uh, for listening. Listeners can find all the work in this project on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. Uh, just to quickly run down who was involved in the project and what they did, uh, we have Fanar Haddad, who wrote Shia Rule is a Reality in Iraq. Shia Politics Needs a New Definition. Uh, we have Marcin's uh, report, which I've referenced a few times, about uh, called Shia Clerics in Iraq Haven't Lost Their Authority. Ali al-Maulawi wrote, Iraqi Shia factions are supposedly anti-state, but state power is what they want. Renad Mansour's contribution was entitled The Logic of Intra-Shia Violence in Iraq. Ben Robin de Cruz wrote The Sadra's Political Machine in Basra. Taif al-Khudari contributed Young Revolutionary Parties Are Still Iraq's Best Hope for Democracy. And Haley Bobstein, a related study called The Contours of Third-Way Politics. Maria Fantapier wrote a study of the personality politics of uh, the Dawa party called Men of Dawa, how the personalities of one party shaped Iraq's new politics. Uh, Sajad uh, has a contribution that draws on his forthcoming biography of Ayatollah Lisistani. And I have a piece on the sectarian relapse, uh, Lessons of the Shia House. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.